The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. And let me give you a little bit of the history, how we got here. Passed a resolution, and it said, you know, we, we need to do something about the immigration issue. I have been with the convention now for over a decade. And when I first came in, I was doing Hispanic church planting. And this was the problem. We have a very qualified guy to plant a church. He was Hispanic. But he came in when he was 20 years old, and he came in illegal. And I will let John explain the terms later. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the convention will have a conundrum or, a, or a, a problem because we assist financially sometimes, not directly, but through the association and so forth. Well, you have someone that doesn't have any papers or social security number. So if we help them financially, we'll get into a legal trouble with the IRS. But also there was the, the moral dilemma. Should you be sponsoring or supporting a guy that is illegal, uh, that broke the law, and he's going to be the spiritual leader of a congregation, and the convention is going to be endorsing that kind of situation? Uh, so it was a problem for us, but the solution at that point was, once you get the papers, call us and we'll see what we can do. Well, that would eliminate almost a whole pool of, of candidates, of kids that grew up here, came in as children and so forth, and I didn't know how to deal with the system. And, and So by 2015, the convention said we need to do something and created this immigration ministry or service. We don't have all the answers. I work full-time. I do Hispanic strategy coordination for the convention, and the last two or three years I've been taking a very thorough training on immigration. And the more that I think I understand the law, the... <laughs> Uh, the, the more overwhelmed I feel because it's, it's just ever-changing. Uh, but we have two experts here, true experts. John Faison, kind of my mentor, has been the guy that I've been shadowing with, and he's going to be speaking in, in a minute, and Larry Phillips. They are f- fully accredited and partially accredited. Uh, uh, we're going to explain in a minute what that means. Uh, I am also with the DOJ uh, accredited to serve specifically on immigration laws. I cannot practice law in any other area, but immigration per se. Um, We are trying to serve and approach this issue from a biblical standpoint. What does the Bible say about the immigrants? How can we get involved without breaking the law but without being callous? Because that's how we were coming across of people completely indifferent to the suffering of the foreigner which is completely anti-biblical or people that just care more about our reputation and our public image than about the sufferings of, of a whole group of people, thousands upon thousands of them. We are still in the process of fleshing this out, learning every day, and trying to do it better. But we are working through our churches to help establish immigration clinics, and the guys will talk in more details about those issues and how we can serve. The, the convention passed a resolution in 2015, but the national convention also passed, I think it's a second resolution now. We have one earlier on. And finally, in in Texas, when they came together, they passed another resolution where they also will engage in this issue. I know John has been working with J.D. Greer, the president, and some some other things that John might choose to to share later on. But our denomination as a whole whole is really involved. Uh, And I am very excited about that because, as I said, we were very passive. And now we have an opportunity to make a a difference in that area. And... uh, and serve our churches through establishing immigration clinics through our churches. I work full-time with the convention. 
Larry, is, he retired from the convention, but he's working harder than ever now on immigration <laughs> only. And, and John is a partner with us. John is the executive director, treasurer for uh, the CIR rally, Council on Immigrant Relations. Uh, he has been working with immigrants for years, many, many years. He's fluent in Spanish. Larry as well lived in Peru for over 20 years. These guys are fluent in Spanish. We have a lot of immigrants from different countries, Asia, but obviously Hispanics are the overwhelming numbers. And uh, so it's good to have these guys with those skills that, that can serve in that capacity. Uh, I work full-time with the convention. I will be there for you when you guys have questions and you want to move forward with some type of immigration ministry. What I'm hoping today is just for you to get some contact information, get my name, hear what we are doing, and then hopefully we can partner somehow. You, you guys are representing different churches and different areas of the state. And uh, so I'm going to turn it over to you guys to, to get into the details. And hopefully at the end of the hour, we might have some time for questions and, and, and answers. And even after the breakout session, if you think that there is something very specific that you want to talk about your case or, or your situation, I'm sure I can hold one of these guys here and we can get into, into it a little bit deeper. John or Larry, who's next? Uh, you are, and I will turn it over to you, and you can explain more details what I what I will say. Thank you. Yeah. I want to start with some biblical thoughts, not just because we're here at a church conference, but because I really think the motivation for working with immigrants and working in the immigration uh, realm is rooted in the Scripture. Now, you have to understand. I, I, the last time I talked about this. It took six weeks. So <laughs> I just want you to understand, I'm, I'm just going to try to whet your appetite for a few things. There's a lot more to be said, and I can make some references for some materials that you can read and follow up on this. Um, but I want to just put a, a few ground-laying uh, ground thoughts about why the Baptist State Convention would choose to get involved in this really divisive issue. And how we as Christians need to be looking at this from a primary standpoint. I know that most people see this as a political question. But I want to submit to you that it's not only, and it's not primarily, a political question. It's a biblical question that we need to deal with. And so I know we can't get into all that, and I, um, I'm not going to answer your political questions. Um, most of us are not qualified to make policy decisions. That's just not our calling, nor are we qualified to do that. But we should be qualified to talk about it from a biblical standpoint. And so I want to give us three points of, uh, where, where we can root our thinking from the Scripture. And they all sort of tie together and realize there's a lot more to be said. So it might raise more questions than it gives answers, but that's what I want to do. I want to give you a place to start to think about this. My favorite book in the Bible, if I have a favorite, is Genesis this morning, uh, we had the privilege of, we have two Iraqi girls in our home. They're going to be there for two weeks. Uh, they've come with the Department of State to, to sow goodwill and whatever. But we're hosting them. And so I was thinking about, you know, we have devotions every morning. I have four kids. And where am I going to start with these Iraqi girls? Because they, own, I said, what do you know about Americans? Well, we watch you guys on TV. So whatever they see on Friends or what was the show um, up in Seattle where they had the, the medical show. Anyways, Grey's Anatomy. They were like, oh, Grey's Anatomy. That's what they know about us. <laughs> and so I am wanting them to see a little bit 
what a Christian family's like, an American Christian family. So I was praying about, so we read Genesis chapter 1. I thought, that's where we start. Because Iraq is mentioned there, interestingly enough, not in the name Iraq, but you know, the Euphrates River and all that. So that was very interesting. And that happens to be my favorite, one of my favorite books in the Bible. And that's where we need to start with immigration. Now, why do we start there? Well, the first thing, most things you could, that have to do with our relationships are rooted in the Imago Dei. Am I right? The Bible says that God made man in his image. And that was what set man apart from the rest of his creation. The trees were good, the Bible said. The animals were good, the Bible says. The waters and all the life that he created was good. But it wasn't real good until he created man and woman in his image. And that characteristics of being an image bearer carries throughout the scripture. It's not just said in Genesis and then dropped. And we're going to move on. Uh, I'm going to need to make one more point about Genesis. We'll move on into the New Testament with that. The other point I want to point out in the book of Genesis is also in the first two chapters of Genesis, we see an immigration mandate. Does that surprise you? The Bible has this Bible talk has an immigration mandate. What did what was the, one of the very first commands that God gave to Adam and Eve? He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. How do you fill the earth? If you're, if you're there in the Garden of Eden between the Euphrates and the Tigris River, and you're supposed to fill the earth, you have to immigrate. You have to migrate. There's, I mean, that's, that was one of the first. And if you think about it, one of the first times that God brought judgment on, well, where he brought great judgment was when the people refused to do that. Remember, they were gathered together in the uh, plain of Sinar, and they created the Tower of Babel. They formed themselves, they refused to migrate. And so what did God do? Yes, he punished them, but he changed their language. He confused their languages. Some Hebrew scholars would suggest that that text says that not only did he confuse their languages and force them, but he literally, in a physical manner, picked them up and dispersed them. I, some Hebrew scholars say that. But the point is, from that point on, there was a migration. The people then were forced to obey God's plan that we fill the earth. So there was a God, the immigration and migration was a plan of God's from the beginning. Now, you can add a lot of stuff to that and start arguing, well, immigration is a national. Just accept the fact that God had that. That's born within us. Most of us have immigrated. Now, I know most of us live within the United States of America, but I would submit to you that most of you have moved from one state to another. And it might not sound like a migration, but it is a migration. You move from one state, if you were in Central America, it wouldn't be states, it would be countries. But we're in the United States, and we're very different. I was t- explaining to my Iraqi guests yesterday, some of them did go to Seattle, and I said, Seattle's very different than <laughs> North Carolina. And some of them went to Denver, and I said, Denver's very different than North Carolina. They speak different, they act different, they think different. So migration is in the heart of man. Migration is in the plan of God. So that's an interesting thing to think about. Now, I, wanna, I know we're going to jump, but I want to jump really quickly into the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember the lawyer, the expert in the law, said to Jesus, how do I get into the kingdom of heaven? And I, not long ago, I was studying this text, and it, it, it jumped out at me, at least in the account in Luke, 
it was the lawyer who said how the, the, the reason, that, how you get into heaven. And you, he took the first one from Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. But in Deuteronomy, the next thing doesn't say, and your neighbor is yourself. doesn't say that. So I'm like, well, where the heck did he get that from? Well, that's actually in Leviticus chapter 19. And I would really encourage you to read Leviticus 19 because it's very exciting. And that's when he said, and the second is likened unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he, he said that, and he was attempting to justify himself. He was pretty much saying, I got this one, God. Jesus, I, I, I love my neighbor. And then he asked the question, who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus did what he normally does when somebody asks him a question. He turned it on his head. He turned the question on its head. And without going into a lot of detail, Jesus answered him by saying, who was being neighborly? He didn't say, who's your neighbor? He didn't answer, who's my neighbor? He said, the point is to be neighborly. Now, I want to just unpeel that scripture really quick, that, 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 um, that parable for you, and, and put some, maybe put some things out there that you haven't thought about and seen before. You remember he picked the person that was being neighborly as a Samaritan. Now, if we put the Samaritan in the context of the way we we may think today, at least my perspective, it would be equivalent to him saying that Muslim imam was the Samaritan. Why? Well, for the Jews, the Samaritans were pagans. They worshipped the wrong god, they worshipped on the wrong hill, and they were the despised. They were the enemy, if you will. Well, in today's vernacular, at least here in the United States, pagans that worship the wrong God, the wrong place, Allah, in Mecca, and to a large degree despised by us. He wasn't saying that the Samaritan was a believer. He, wasn't, he was trying to demonstrate what neighborliness is. And then furthermore, that neighborly person, the Samaritan, was dealing with one of his worst enemies too. You get that? Now, a lot of times I think we, want, we think that Jesus wants us to identify with the Samaritan. But I would suggest to you that maybe the place that we more identify with is with the innkeeper. Now, just bear with me for a second. Some people suggest that the Samaritan was a picture of Christ. And the Jew beat up on the side of the road is a picture of us. And the Samaritan picks up this person, puts him on his donkey, his donkey, takes him to the inn, and says, I will pay. And he entrusts him to an innkeeper. I wonder if perhaps we could see ourselves as innkeepers. And as God has brought to us in this country people that are beaten up, people that are not legal, <laughs> People that have all kinds of problems. And he's dropped him in our inn. And he says, I'll pay it, whatever it is. Will you take care of him? I think that's being neighborly. I think the focus is on the Samaritan. What about that innkeeper? Who knows for sure whether that innkeeper was Jewish or not? Depends on where you think the Jericho Road was. If it was in the south, it probably was a Jew. If it was in the north, it probably wasn't. It was probably a Samaritan. God didn't tell us that piece of it. But this Samaritan put a big job on the shoulders of the innkeeper and said, 
and check that out to my account. Folks, when it comes to loving immigrants and loving people that are not like us, I think God is saying to us, I've got you a big job here, but put it on my account. Take care of them until I return. The next point, and you can see there's a lot more to be said there. The next point I want to point out is in Matthew 25, you've probably heard this used many, many, many times for the stranger. You remember that's when people were brought to Jesus and he was given an example of who's in the kingdom again, just like the question of the Samaritan. And he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was, a, I was, um, I was a, a, a stranger and you took me in. I was imprisoned and you visited me. I was sick and you ministered to me. And the people said, Jesus, when did we see that do you, happen to you? And he said, whenever you saw this in one of the least of these, my brethren, whenever you did this under one of the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. And then, you know, furthermore, as we go down the passage, he repeats the whole thing and says, when you didn't do this, you didn't do it unto me. There's a lot of things in there that we can unpack. But there's two things I just want to point out. In our society, in our experience, I'm not saying across the globe, but I'm just talking about in our experience today in this time, can you think of a group that more embodies, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was a stranger, and I was imprisoned than the people gathering at our southern border right now. Now, Politics, I get it. Illegal, I get it. Okay. But let's just fit them into the categories that Jesus that Jesus just put out there. Hungry, they've walked 2,000 miles, they didn't stop at McDonald's. Um, Thirsty, I was there folks, I've been in southern Mexico, I've been in northern Mexico this year. They are thirsty. Naked, most of them have the clothes that's on their back and that is it. Because you don't walk 2,000 miles with a suitcase, right? In prison, now think about that with me just a minute. Imprisoned mean they did something wrong, or at least they did something that society didn't think was right. That's these people. And I was a stranger. I was a stranger. And how does he expect us to respond to that? Even if they are our enemies, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 says, Love your enemies. So when I talk to people about this, and this when I bring this one up, all kinds of things come up. Oh, well, broke the law. Fine. They were in prison. They broke the law. Well, you know, they're enemies. The Bible says love your enemies. I mean, you just can't get around this as a Christian. Why would I have Iraqi children in my house with my four other kids? And I have Iranian friends, too. Oh, boy. Because God told me to love them. That's why. And as a Christian, all this stuff we build up about politics and Democrats and Republicans in our country and our food stamps, that just all gets blown away when he says, love them. Now, do those things have to be dealt with? Absolutely. Is there, are there things that have to be done? There is. But what's your responsibility? Are you passing laws? Are you ICE? Are you CBP? No, you're a child of the king. And let me remind you, you belong to a different kingdom. The U.S. is not your final place. 
your primary allegiance is not as an American citizen. It's as a kingdom citizen, and I have to tell you, in spite of what some people would tell us, there's a wall around heaven, there's also a big gate, and whosoever will may come. And that's, that's the position that we come from. Now, I want to expound one more thing, and then I know I have to quit, about love. We've also been reading the book of 1 John recently as a family, and I would ex- encourage you to slowly read through the book of John. And think about it in the context. The Bible tells us that one of the defining characteristics of a Christian is to show hospitality. Oh, we're in the South. We got that one covered. We're like the, we're like the, um, the Pharisee, the, law, the lawyer said, Oh, I sure know how to love my neighbor. Well, I would suggest that the word in the Scripture for hospitality is different than Southern hospitality. The word is philozenia. Love of the stranger. Philo, brotherly loves. Xenia, xenophobia. It's the love of the stranger. We are called to love of the stranger. And if you look at Romans chapter 12, I know a lot of people like to go to 13. But in Romans chapter 12, it says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now, why does he say, be not conformed to the world in the beginning of chapter 12? Because he's about to lay out a bunch of principles that are counter to the world's thinking. And one of those in verse 13 is this, process, this idea of philosophia of hospitality. Folks, that is counter to the, to the world's type of thinking. It is not normal to love people that are not like you. As much as you think it is, it's not. We are drawn to people that are more like us because we're more comfortable. Yes, it is weird to have two girls that when I show up from work yesterday, ran downstairs to put their hijabs on. That's weird to me. And it's not comfortable. And we're sitting at the table talking about things that we normally talk about. And we're thinking, oh, is that going to offend them? Yeah, it's a little weird to have two Iraqi girls in my home. It's not normal, but we are not to be conformed to this world. And then the second thing about love, and we'll have to quit with this, and this is exciting. I got this out of First John. It's very difficult, if not impossible, it is impossible, to sit down and have a meal with Jesus. He just doesn't, he's not here in the physical form anymore. He was, and he will be, and one day we will sit down at the table with him, we can't do that now. And I really can't put my arms around him at this point. I can't sympathize with Jesus or with God when he hurts. When something's displeasing to him. He's not here. But he said something very interesting. One of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways that we can love him is by loving his image. By putting our arms around his image. By having a meal with his image. Where did I get that? How can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? Now you can take that as a negative and it definitely has a negative connotation but it also has a great positive. How many times have you really, really in your heart wanted to reach out and love God. Not by going to Sunday school, not by giving your tithes, not by just reading your scriptures. All that stuff's good. I'm not dissing on that. But when's the last time you wanted to hug him? Well, let me tell you something. You can. In his image. I was hungry, he said. You gave me a meal. I was thirsty. 
and you gave me something to drink. I was naked. This is Jesus speaking. And you clothed me. I was in prison. When was Jesus in prison? I was in prison and you visited me. And I was a stranger. Now why in all those things he picked that one out? Because it's not normal, folks. It's countercultural. It's counter to the world. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Do you want to welcome Jesus? Welcome a stranger. Why? Hebrews 13.2. I'm not stretching the scripture. Be careful that you show hospitality to strangers. Because in doing so, some have entertained angels. That's not my words. Hebrews 13.2. Yes, and it happened in Scripture, by the way. Abraham, under the tree at Mamre, saw the, two stranger, the three strangers, killed the fatty calf. Somebody's hearkening back to that there in Hebrews. But that's for us today, too. It's really important that we love strangers. So that's all I'm going to say about that. I want to come back in a few minutes after Larry's done. I think I might have taken about the right amount of time. And Larry's going to talk to us about some practicalities. And I wish we had more time to talk about that. You can tell I love it. <laughs> okay, you can see there's no passion around anything that we're dealing with with the immigration piece. Uh, there's so much about this. And um, we feel called to what God is asking us to do in this area. And God has given us world experiences but biblical encounters with Christ that has positioned us to give our lives to what we're doing with this immigration. So what what I want to do in the next uh, five to ten minutes, and we're going to save some time for questions for you, uh, is to give you a snapshot of what the convention is doing. So uh, you had the overview, and John has uh, shared with us the, the biblical and theological perspective of why we're doing this. So let me give you a view of what the Baptist State Convention is doing. So the convention currently, we have what we call uh, Baptist Immigration Services, BIS. And with Baptist Immigration Services, with the convention, there are several things that we're attempting to do. One is an educational piece that we're doing with the American churches and with the ethnic churches that are affiliated with the convention. Part of that educational piece builds on the biblical and theological understanding of why we're engaging the immigrants who have come to live among us. So we have presentations that we can go into an American English-speaking church, and uh, John and Amari and I both uh, we'll do a biblical and theological interpretation, explanation of why should we engage uh, the immigrant population who's living among us. What does the Bible have to say? So John referenced many passages, but there are other passages of significant importance for us to understand what should be our response. So the Bible doesn't speak specifically to immigration policy, but the Bible does speak to the Christian response to immigrants. And so we try to make that distinction. So what does the Bible say? And John has referenced some of those. So we, that's the educational piece that we're, we're attempting to do. So we're invited to churches, meet with association pastors, individuals, and talk about what does Scripture have to say about those who God is sending to live among us. So you've got the educational piece. Uh, you talked about the, in that social and the, um, how to do the law. Yes, yeah, and so with that too, 
with the educational piece, uh, we also deal about uh, and give overviews of immigration law uh, and what are the aspects of immigration law and how can we better understand immigration law. So you've got the educational piece. I'll just put up here. Uh, also, we have the uh, client piece that we actually offer immigration services to clients. We see clients. Uh, we deal with documented and undocumented individuals. Uh, and we're able to offer them immigration services. John referenced, or Amari referenced earlier, we aren't immigration attorneys, but we are accredited with the Department of Justice to practice immigration law. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, you have the Department of Justice, DOJ, and under DOJ there's an organization subtitle OLAP, which stands for Office of Legal access programs and then under OLAP we have accredited centers we have recognized centers and accredited representatives so a church can become an accredited a recognized center let me just get that up right so you can see it a recognized center and you have accredited representatives. So you guys from, from uh, for an example, Ridgecrest Baptist Church could actually have an immigration clinic operating in your church. Uh, and you get recognition through the Office of Legal Access Programs under the Department of Justice. So with that recognized center, you have accredited representatives, and that's what we are. Uh, Maury mentioned we have... Uh, full accreditation and partial accreditation with the representatives. John is fully accredited with OLAP, Department of Justice, to practice immigration law. So that full accreditation allows him to actually represent people before an immigration court and an immigration judge. Uh, Amari and I have partial accreditation. We're able to represent uh, immigrants before USCIS and the Department of Homeland Security. So we don't go to court. John goes to court. He's got a little more training, a little more experience than we have. So that's kind of how that works. Now how do you get, so how do you get accredited? Uh, how do you get a center started? So we, let me just talk a little bit about that. A, a great site that you can go to is Clinic legal.org and clinicallegal.org is a center where uh, the Catholic Church offers immigration services and they have tremendous resources online that you can take a look at and, and begin moving towards recognition and accreditation. So if you're interested in doing something and getting your church, we would suggest that you would begin to look at clinics training. And that training, the next training event that they have, starts 916 and goes through 1031 
It's an online course. The cost is $495. And you're able to take the course online. If you miss a class, the classes are recorded, and you can go back and take the class later during the week. But it's like, it's like what is that, eight weeks? I don't remember exactly. Six to eight weeks. But it's two, two classes a week. So it's usually like on a Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, you have uh, uh, exams that you have to complete online. And, uh, but that, that's a training opportunity that you have. Also at clinic, I'll, I'll come back to this in just a second. Also at clinic, they have another course that you can take for $25, which is the Fundamentals of Immigration Law. And, and that's a great course just to see if you have some interest, uh, aptitude to deal with this. And so for $25, it's uh, self-directed. Uh, you do it at your own pace. You have access to this, uh, this particular fundamentals of immigration law. You have about four to six weeks to complete it. And, and that gives you an, just a complete overview. Uh, some of us have taken this... $25 course in preparation to take the $495 course. So after you take this course, then you take an exam. So you're required to pass an exam, and then you have to have practical hours in an immigration attorney's office or at a recognized center. So if you take the course, pass the exam, then you do your shadowing at an office. And CIR is a recognized center, and so you could actually do your shadowing at CIR in Raleigh. I run a center in Hickory. It's called El Centro Latino. Our center is recognized, and you would be able to do shadowing in our center. Uh, we've got another uh, hospitality center that we're opening in Lincolnton, and that center will be a satellite of CIR. It will be a recognized center. So there's a lot of places you can do your shadowing. I did most of my shadowing in the immigration attorney's office. Amari uh, has done a lot of his with John. Uh, but part of what we would do as a convention, we will walk you through the process. And so that's the other component with Baptist Immigration Services is that we're wanting to open clinics across North Carolina. And there are two ways that we can do it, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it if you have questions about it. The clinics <clears throat> could be your own 501c3, or the clinics could come under CIR. Um, and so you don't have to form your own 501c3. You could become a satellite center <clears throat> of what we're already doing with CIR in Raleigh. Uh, saves a little money. It gets you up starting a lot quicker. <clears throat> and then in the future, if we had a center, say Ridgecrest wanted to do a center, we'd, we'd probably suggest start it with us, with CIR. And then in a year, two years, three years, if you decided that, that you wanted to be a standalone, form your own 501c3 or come under the 501c3 of your church, then you'd be able to do that and have your own center up and running. Okay. Also, for churches who don't have their own 501c3, you come under the 501c3 of the convention if you support the Baptist State Convention in North Carolina. 
So you use our own 501c3 if you wanted to start something like that for your own church. Um, so that gives you an overview. The, the the components that you that we want you to understand is there's an educational piece, there's a client piece, and then there's a clinic piece that we want to get started. So the vision that we have eventually is that <clears throat> we 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 wouldn't always have BIS because the convention doesn't want to forever be engaged in immigration services. And why would I say that? Because it's not our task as a convention to do it, it's the task of the local church. And so our vision is that the church do this, somebody's got to get it started. And so we, we, we'll come alongside, we'll be with you. I, I guess BIS is going to be around for, for several more years, but I think, you know, there'll, there'll come a time if this catches by the church that this will become a church ministry. And, and we'll be supportive of that and encouraging of that, but it'd be something you'll be able to, to get up and running by yourselves. So that's that's basically what I want to say, and we're going to, to leave the next 15 minutes for question and answers. Uh, things that you may have questions about this piece of it or the biblical theological piece or other concerns. And you guys come on up. We'll just pass this microphone around as people have questions and comments that they want to make. So, Amari, anybody, any questions, uh, thoughts, clarifications? That BIS, do you have a website, or is it through the state convention website, or how do you find it? Yeah, it's, it's, CIR has a website. What does that stand for? Council on Immigrant, Immigrant Relations. And that's CIRNC.org. CIRNC. No, CIRNC. North Carolina.org. Yeah, but Mark, that's one of the things we're we're working on that we 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 need to have a web presence. We come under the convention website currently, uh, so, so but we're funding everything through CIR currently. The other the other interesting thing that I think about this whole process is that um, we are affiliates with Clinic Legal. So the, the convention has allowed us to become affiliate member of clinic, uh, Catholic Legal Services, which is really an unusual opportunity for us. We're the only Baptist State Convention that has this type of affiliation with clinic. And so they're the best trainers. They have the best resources. They've been involved in it for years. And we, as a team, decided we'd make a recommendation to the convention to move forward with that affiliation, and it has been very, very helpful uh, for us. And we're usually the, you know, the three apostles, the Baptist apostles who are represented at their Catholic meetings. Well, uh, we can, we do stand out. I also can add for, for the Catholics, um, they probably have the most rooted biblical understanding of dealing with immigrants. Uh, that sounds a little strange, and I'm not endorsement of Catholic theology. Don't don't get, don't uh, don't hear that incorrectly. But if you really want to get a good rooted understanding of the image of God as it re- relates to immigrants and a rooted in the Bible understanding of immigration, the Catholics have done a fantastic job of that. 
Yeah, and we used to be Centro Internacional de Rally. So we're in the process of trying to get it all changed, but it just takes time and money. And so that's... But that's the website. That's, well, that, yeah. There's two websites, but they're all connected together. Churches, how does that, what does that look like? Talk about what we did with the point church. <coughs> um, and it might be different for, for every congregation, depending on what the leadership is trying to accomplish. What we have done so far is we bring like a seminar, about two or three hours, depending on the situation, uh, where we go into what John just did, a deeper understanding, a theological understanding of immigration. Then we get into the practical aspect of how do you get trained to start a clinic or how the practical approach could be, or what practical approach the church could take in, in an immigration situation, uh, and so forth. So we tailor the training depending on the situation and what the church is trying to accomplish, uh, how much time we have, two, three hours, or, or whatever amount of time. So we can talk about that if you have something in mind, something that you would like to bring. I usually speak on churches on Sunday mornings. The time they tell me, you know, take 15 minutes and give us an overview or take 30 minutes. Or It depends on the pastor and what he, he's really trying to accomplish with his congregation. We also can do it in Spanish. Yes, that's right. You can do it bilingually or in Spanish. Yeah, and, and another thing we've got a, a very favorable response to is just an overview of immigration law. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes to your question, you know, what do we do with documented and undocumented folks? And we actually deal with those difficult questions. Of uh, Most people don't understand immigration law, and one of the things we hear regularly is they need to get in, just everybody needs to get in line. Uh, we talk about there's there's really no line there for them to get into, and some some applications are are pending for 18 years. If you can imagine, people are waiting 18 years to get permission to come in. 1997, right now, I just did this yesterday. Um, a brother or sister of a Mexican national, they're processing from January of 1997 right now. Was 22 years ago. So 22 years ago, the application was filed. And people are waiting for but 22 years. is that because there is a, maybe a problem they're trying to work there? That's not the That's just the normal, no, that's just the normal process for a Mexican thing. brother or sister of a U.S. citizen. And then Philippines, they're processing from 1998. And then anybody else in the world, they're processing from 2006 right now. That's just the process. And, that, so, and that's just for brothers and sisters. Now, there's different categories, husbands and wives and, and all this. But brothers and sisters of U.S. citizens are processing. The earliest right now is from 2006. So if I'm Mexican and my brother is in Mexico and I submit the paperwork all in order, all the right way, I need to wait 22 years before my brother is allowed into the country. And, and that's how, even if he qualifies. I mean, he qualifies, but there's not an available visa so he waits 22 years to get the visa. Well, why can the others just why can the others come in so much faster? Well, we have we have a quota system that was put in in in, in um in 1960s because before that we basically did it based upon well, regions of the others, world. Like you said, some of them, like a husband and a wife, those have immediate visas available for them, and that process takes about a year to year and a half. Children that are minor children, year to year and a half. Now, interestingly enough, I have a client from South Africa who the mom, so, so mom and dad have a son that's a U.S. citizen. They are able to immediately um, immigrate, but, but he has a sister who, if he wants her to come, she has to wait 12 years. 
So mom and dad can come, but they're going to have to leave their daughter behind. I was thinking about a couple in our church that, you know, he came and he's a citizen now, but I think his wife was already. So those take 18 months to two years to do. So is one of the reasons people come illegally because of the long wait? Well, at this point, people are coming uh, because our law allows people to apply for asylum at any point across the border, whether it's at a border entry or whether it's between border entry points, and they can apply for asylum. Many of these people are fleeing from violence or from extortion or from whatever, and so they're coming at this point. That's what a lot of them are coming for. Now, prior to this, you know, 2006 and back, uh, there was a huge economic driver, and so immediately somebody says, "Well, okay, what?" Well, as Richard Land, I don't know if you know who Richard Land is, but Richard Land said it well one time. He said, "We have two signs at the front at, at our border. One says." help wanted, and the other one says go home. And so, uh, you know, you've heard about the chicken poultry plant over there in Mississippi. Well, they were actively recruiting undocumented people since the 90s to come to those plants. Are those people not prosecuted for doing that? No. 20 people, 20 people a year, people, not companies, 20 people a year get prosecuted probably for, for, for well, on average, for violating the law and hiring undocumented workers. 120,000 a year people get prosecuted for working illegally. So my point is, yes, it's a violation of the law for them to come here to work. I would also argue that's a, from Genesis, the Bible told us we had to work and the government has no business and tells us whether we can work or not. But that's another point. Um, that, that is a violation of the law. It's also a misdemeanor. And I can promise you, I knew on purpose, but I promise you I committed a misdemeanor on my way here today because I broke, I broke the speed limit. So we have to deal with proportionality. Yes, somebody broke the law, but we also have employers that are breaking the law. And you've got to decide what is the proportional response to committing a misdemeanor. Not everybody here has just committed a misdemeanor. We know there are drug traffickers, and we know that people come for all other reasons, but we got to look at proportion. There's a lot to be said about this. We're getting off that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and part of it, Mark, is we, we talk about push and pull factors, that there are push factors that are pushing them out of those poor countries with crime and violence. Then you have the pull factors of economy and education and a better life, that this is still the best nation in the world, and, and people want to come here because – the American dream is still very much alive for those who don't have that opportunity. So we, we talk a great deal of, about those pull and push factors that are involved in it as well. So what's the objective of the BIS twofold? One is education and two is... Client services. Helping people who need to get legal, get legal, or get protection? Or yeah, part of it is... It, yeah, people to get legal, but it, it's also people who have status, legal status, who need to change status. So, got them through the system. Got them through the system. You have someone who has permanent residence, uh, but there are benefits for them to become citizens. Or you have someone who comes in on a student visa that wants to change that student visa to a permanent resident visa. So we're working with people who have status and people who don't have status. And then and the big one is this whole clinic idea. The clinic that we're running 
And and, and John, same way, it's not just immigration. Uh, we have an educational piece at the clinic that we have in Hickory. We have an after-school program for immigrant children. Uh, we're partnering with Lenoreine University, and so they, they have students who come over and tutor 50 kids in the afternoon to help them with their homework. Then we have a client services director that helps them find medical assistance and housing assistance and job placement assistance. So there are a lot of components that could be part of that clinic, just not the immigration and, piece. And, and actually the end of it is not just client services. The end of it is for the body of Christ to be able to welcome the stranger. And that takes different forms. But if that's left off, then we're doing just nothing but legal services, which that's another whole. I mean, that, that can be done yeah. by anyone. Yeah, and, and, and it is to make the it's to make the connection with the church, but it's also given us the opportunity of witnessing to these yeah. folks. And there's not a time that we have a client interview that there's not a prayer. There is a gospel conversation, uh, and that's very important for us we're christian based and and they know that when they come to us and so we try to make that a point are you looking for a team in your congregation or building a team that's bilingual skills is that uh, who surfaces mostly when you really get down to business with trying to get these kind of certifications and it, it could be someone that's bilingual but it doesn't have to be uh, it doesn't have to be you there are enough interpreters out there to help uh, so your team would be somebody that has a passion around it somebody that uh, can go through the process that has a determination to work through the system you know it takes time to get this done and and uh, immigration law is very complicated I understand you know it's uh, perhaps more difficult than the tax law uh, so it takes somebody that's able to process all of this stuff and to manage different components, and then it's somebody that's not frustrated when there are delays. And, and, and when you lose most of the time. Actually, when you're doing defensive immigration law, you lose most of it. You just lose. I go to court, and I haven't won a case yet. <laughs> not because I'm not good. Um, I'm appealing. I mean, we've got everything. But my appeals are going to take five, six, seven, eight years, and they have to sometimes go all the way up to the circuit court. So you just you just you do it. You don't do it because you love winning. You don't do it because you make a lot of money. You do it because you love God and you love people. So that 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 kind of gives the team, it, and and it's a calling. And uh, and again, the other piece, uh, talking about asylum and asylees and refugees, to help churches understand, you know, how can refugees come in? And that number has been reduced drastically over the last couple of years. I think this the coming year is to come to zero. Yeah, I think the new this year from the administration is no refugees. No refugees at all. Uh, this year, I think it was twenty-five thousand refugees. And they only let seventeen in. Uh, and and then you got all the asylees. Refugees are approved before they get into the country. Asylees are approved for asylum once they get at the border, and then they're processed. And these asylum cases can take up to two to three years or longer. And and people are in limbo during that particular time because of the law. Uh, thank you for coming. Pray for us as we move forward.